two on the play clock. They get the snap. They only bring four. Stidham in the pocket. Gets out of there. Eyes downfield. Flag flies. He's drilled as he throws. Open Adams at the 35. Racing to the 20. 10. Touchdown Raiders. Stidham was drilled as he threw it and found a wide open Devontae Adams for if it stands a 60-yard touchdown. All right, here we go. It's a Tuesday off yesterday. Ed, Tyler, and Jared running the show. Back in action. Before we get to the Raiders, over the weekend, through leaving my house, there was just a dog roaming the street. Like, not in our neighborhood outside. Like, four cars pulled over to help this dog, including us. And he just belonged to somebody's house who was outside and had no idea their dog had run off and was in the middle of the street. Okay, that's like, an update. Four people stopped to help this dog. It was great. Well, that's better than some of the situations we see uh, in the papers and other ways with dogs with people who hurt them. And uh, so, very happy for your neighborhood. Very happy for you guys that you we had to over scare to it basically back to their house, and then got back, and the owners were just like, "Oh, our dog's gone." All right. Congratulations. <laughs> happy New Year to did, you. Did I tell you the story about when we did find a dog? Did you keep it? Yeah, well, we there was a dog on the side of the road. We pulled over. It took a while, but got it into our car, and we had the dog for like 48 hours. And no like, chip, no collar? No, had like taken it to our vet, and our vet was like, well, we can't do anything because we don't. Th- it's not your dog. We don't know what it is. And we uh, called the Animal Foundation, and like 24 hours later, somebody went there looking for their dog. And it was somebody that was from California that was visiting. And they just stopped there on their way out and got their dog back. Boy, your heroes in the neighborhood. Rescue dogs. This Rescue was dogs. this was just in the middle of a street somewhere. This wasn't even near our neighborhood. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The wife has done that. Yeah, she, if she sees a stray dog running, she'll pull over. And birds, too. Try apparently. to get it. And birds as well. How many birds you got at the house now? Two. They're still still going strong. They're still going strong. All right, we've got the heat lamp on them at night because uh, it gets cold. <laughs> so we do have the heat lamp. He's still throwing the blanket over him to shut him up. Yes, <laughs> yes. We'll also get to what happened in Monday Night Football in a bit, but here we go. The first bite. Will Jarrett Stidham be the Raiders QB next season? I don't think so. I don't think he'll be the starter. He's an unrestricted free agent. I'm not saying he won't be on the team or he wouldn't be a backup, but I have a feeling he wouldn't be a starter. He, We asked uh, Josh McDaniels after the game if he kind of discovered a way to include him now in the future plans, and he said that's premature to talk about. You don't want to get carried away with Jarrett Stidham hype after one game? I wrote about it. I thought he was I thought he was great. I thought he played well and did things uh with his with his feet that other Raider quarterbacks of, of late have not done. So I have no problem with the way he played. Uh, but if the question is, will he be the starter, then I don't agree with he'll be the starter. I would be stunned if the Raiders go in the next season with Jared Stidham as their starter, regardless of how he well, well he plays in Week 18 against Kansas City. Uh, I don't believe as a coach who may or may not be on the hot seat next year that you can go into a season with Jarrett Stidham as your quarterback, unless you have full assurances from ownership that you don't need to win next year. Like if Mark Davis, for whatever reason, told Josh McDaniels, yeah, we're okay with tanking or something like that, then okay, Jarrett Stidham can be your quarterback. But you can't trust what you see over this week and possibly next week and make that your quarterback for next season. Um, However, I think this was the... To me, the big takeaway from Stidham's performance was more about what it means 
about Derek Carr. Because what blew me away is that Jared Stidham made multiple plays in that game that Derek Carr would have like never even tried. Right. Like, okay, here's a fun stat. Stidham ran for 34 yards. In Derek Carr's 142 game career, he has rushed for 34 or more yards five times. We're talking about roughly two and a half percent of Carr's games has he run for 34 yards. Stidham did it in his first career start. But the big play and the one that's gotten the most appreciation was that second touchdown pass to Devontae Adams, mm-hmm. where Stidham scrambles out of the pocket, keeps his eyes down the field, creates a scramble situation for his receivers. Guess who's pretty good at that? Devontae Adams, who gets open, and then Stidham takes a hit. Takes a shot. And still completes it to Devontae yeah. Adams, scores a touchdown. Derek Carr doesn't do that on a no. regular basis. Derek Carr's, that that's not who he is as a quarterback. And for Stidham to do that in his first career start is pretty damning of Derek Carr. Because the other thing, the first touchdown to Devontae Adams, does Carr throw that pass? Um, Adams was not even yeah, remotely close to open. I think he, there's a better chance he throws that pass than did what, didn't, what Stidham did in the second. Well, touchdown. the second one, Carr's thrown I mean, it out of bounds he's not, before Adams even he's gets not open. He's scrambling uh, to the left. I think he might throw the first one more so than the second one. He's not going to stand in there and take a shot and complete the pass yeah. for that goes for a 60 yard touchdown. And here here's the overall key of what Stidham did in that game. It's one it's a one game sample size. To me it doesn't really matter that Stidham did it versus anybody else that would have filled in and did that. What matters to me is that we didn't see Derek Carr do that. So if you're going into the 2023 season and you're trying to decide do I want Derek Carr as my quarterback? I do not want Derek Carr as my quarterback. Because those are the extra plays. Those are the, hey, what we called on the field didn't work. We need you to figure something out that Derek Carr does not do. Derek Carr does not figure it out once the play breaks down. Stidham in one game did. And Stidham, is he going to continue to do that? Probably not. But the fact that he was able to do it in one game, step in in his first start against a really good defense, and look like that, make those extra plays, is damning. Of Derek Carr, and I don't think there's any way. A, if you're the Raiders, you can bring him back. But B, if you're well, he's another not team back. in the NFL, that you can even consider going with. Yeah, Derek Carr is going to be the guy that's going to get us there because he can't make those. Plays. I think someone will trade for someone him. will, but they're going to be idiots because you're not winning anything. You're not doing anything because of Derek Carr. Maybe your team's awesome, and Carr comes in and just doesn't lose for you. Carr comes in and Jimmy Garoppolo's his way to the NFC championship game, but Carr doesn't make those plays. And until he does look at the NFL right now, who are the best quarterbacks in the league? They're the ones that make those plays. Carr doesn't do that. We've got almost a decade of evidence that Carr doesn't do it. We've got one game of Jared Siddham walking in and be like, Oh yeah, this is what you should have been doing the whole time. You got Devontae Adams, let him run around a few more seconds and he was probably going to get open. Yeah, I mean, Stidham was great, uh, and you're, everything you're saying is right about what Derek Carr doesn't do, and we saw that in, in several plays uh, as he used his feet. Now, I think he is better at that, obviously, than Derek Carr, so, you know, that that's just a, I don't know if it's a knock against Derek Carr. I think that's kind of who the co- who the player is, and whether it's his athleticism or lack of there, uh, I'm not so sure, but, or he's just a guy who doesn't want to stand in and take hits or doesn't want to get outside the yeah. pocket. He does. I mean, he... 
he clearly does not want to take hits. And a lot of people try to trace it back to the injury. Uh, right. And that may or may not be fair. I don't know. But if even if it is the case, you can't have that as your quarterback in the NFL right now. Like you've got to have the guy that can make the extra play. You've got to have the guy that can get outside of the pocket and let a play develop a little bit longer. Develops not even the right word. Plays broken down. Let one of your receivers do something. And Adams is the guy that can do something in that scenario. And we saw Stidham do it once. Did that like that play doesn't happen with Derek Carr? At no, he said that when it happened in the press box. You're like he doesn't make that right. play. And that's a damning play for Derek Carr for that to happen in one game against that defense that he can't do that type of thing on a regular basis with Devontae Adams. So. Whatever about Jared Stidham, maybe he's on the team next year. Maybe they draft somebody and there's a legitimate competition for the starting job. But to me, it's more about Carr. It's more about what you saw from Stidham and what Carr wasn't doing in that role. Because at the end of the day, Jared Stidham still put a lot of balls in danger. Jared Stidham was still a risky quarterback. He took risks. And you're going to have mistakes. The amazing thing is when guys like Mahomes or Aaron Rodgers can take risks and still not throw interceptions. That's always the amazing thing about those guys. Stidham obviously threw some picks, so you can, you know, whatever, blame Colton Miller or something for getting pushed back into him, whatever you want to do there. But he's going to be a risky quarterback if that's how he's going to play. But I'd rather have that than what we've seen out of Derek Carr because what we've seen out of Derek Carr is is not great. Um, Did you see uh, Adam Hill tweeted this? I think he wrote a story about it too in the RJ. Did you see that... uh, David Carr on NFL Network mm-hmm. highlighted his best throws of the weekend and did not use one from Jared Stidham. Yes, but he used one from Brock Birdie. <laughs> but he used one from Brock Birdie. Well, look, I mean, the brothers have been this way from the beginning uh, when it comes to Derek, so none of surprising about what he ranked or what he said on NFL Network about Derek and the Raiders. And, you know, here's the thing. he He said a lot of things about Derek that, is completely true. He went through six head coaches. He went through a lot of turmoil. He went through chaos. I mean, that's all true. So is this. They don't want him. Uh, you know, everything that David Carr said could have been true about Derek, but at the end of the day, the management that took over the team doesn't want him and doesn't think he's good enough. So both can be true. Derek Carr's had a uh, terrible situation as the quarterback of the Raiders. He's yeah. been in an organization that cannot build a defense, that cannot have a successful head coach, that can't put... Uh, talent on the field that's comparable to division champions across the league on a yearly basis. Derek Carr is also an average or worse quarterback. Well, that's, and that's the thing. They both can be true. Right. Like Derek Carr has been on this team for nine years. And how many times has he elevated them to a point where you're like, oh, Derek Carr's the reason they did something. Occasionally, a lot of people gave him credit for his leadership last year, which that may or may not be fair, but they also got in on a four-game winning streak while they scored like 17 points a game. Like that four-game winning streak then last year where it got them into the playoffs, before the Chargers game, did they, I don't think they broke 21 points mm-hmm. in the first three wins of that streak. Obviously, it did in the Chargers game when they went to overtime. But like they got in because the offense was just doing enough while the defense was shutting down backup quarterbacks. Like very rarely has there been a situation where, oh yeah, Carr elevated this team to a good record. Or Carr even elevated them beyond what they should have been. And if you're Josh, in all honesty, if you're Mark Davis, you look at it and say, you've been our quarterback for almost a decade and we've done literally nothing. It may not all be your fault. It may be the talent acquisition. It may be the defensive coordinator. It may be the multiple head coaches. But if you're Mark Davis, you're going to say, we've had you for almost a decade and we've got literally nothing to show for it. 
perfectly fine with moving on. Perfectly fine with moving well, on from that. Excuse me, I think Mark Davis had a lot to do with it. I really do. Yeah. In terms of the management and the decision. Which, I think he went in there and and had a big say in moving on from him. Which I think is perfectly fine. Sure, he's we the talked owner. about this. What's what have been the two constants the last decade for the Raiders? Derek Carr and Mark Davis. Everything else has changed. They're in a new damn city. Everything else has changed in Derek Carr's career except the owner and the quarterback. And you're not getting rid of the owner so easily. So the quarterback's the one that you're probably going to go. go. Right. Neither one of them have been very good over the last decade. Is it Derek Carr's fault? No, absolutely not. But he's obviously not the solution because if he was the solution, it would have been fixed. They would have kept him. Right. And they would have fixed him. They would have had more to show for it in nine years than what they do have. Coming up next, we'll jump into some UNLV basketball as they fell to 0-2 in the Mountain West. And a loose ball rebound grabbed by Jordan McCabe. McCabe. Has the ball, loose ball go to Harkless. Harkless drives, Harkless all the way under, lays it up and in. And now the Aztecs throw it away in the backcourt. Harkless picks it up, shoots a three, in and out, no good. Luis Rodriguez had a dunk attempt, go in and out, and it goes over the backcourt. Oh, gosh. We're back to the Press Box Morning Show with Ed Graney and Tyler Bischoff. UNLV lost over the weekend to San Diego State. Nine-point loss and now 0-2 in Mountain West play. And how much trouble do you think UNLV's in? I mean, they're in a lot of trouble if they only have one guy who can score. I mean... Do they, they even have that? I, I don't know if they have that. Luis Rodriguez, the first two games, has kind of been that guy. Um, you know, Keyshawn Gilbert really, really had a forgettable game. And E.J. Harkless... You know, people are going to see 18 points, but 10 came in the last 123 when it was over. Right. Um, And he shot 6 of 19, 2 of 10 from 3, so he wasn't very good. So, yeah, I mean, they're in, you know, it's two games. I get that. Um, Long way to go, but they've really got to find people offensively who can be consistent. So I think this is who Harkless is. He'll have better games, obviously, but Harkless is a... Average efficiency, high volume scorer, and he might be low efficiency, high volume scorer in Mountain West play because the conference schedule is going to be more difficult than the non-conference schedule. So I think this is just you're going to get you're going to get double digit points from Harkless pretty much every single night. You're going to push in twenty a lot of nights, but he's going to need fifteen shots to get there. He's not going to be a high efficiency guy, but he can create his own shot, and it's not always awful like six of nineteen and two of ten from three. I'm stunned by what's happened to Keyshawn Gilbert. He had six turnovers against San Diego State. Six turnovers. He took four shots. That's one point and got benched in the at the end of the second half by Kevin Kruger. And rightfully so. Like he's been unplayable on the offensive end. He was for the first ten games of the season an efficient ball handling, three point shooting, able to get to the paint, able to get to the rim guard like he was exactly what you want in a scoring guard shooting it well and able to get to the paint and a little bit of creation right where he could get into the paint and kick it out if there was an open player and now he doesn't do any of that I mean he didn't he like became absent when he was on the floor against San Diego State. It's like he disappeared when he was on the floor against San Diego State wasn't a part of the offense. And I'm honestly, I'm stunned by that. Like he was shooting 54% from three through like nine or 10 games. Mm-hmm. That obviously hey, that was going to come him down. Scoring. He, was, he was very yeah. good. That's he, obviously you're not going to shoot 54% from three no. for a whole season, but I'm surprised that 
everything else has gotten worse too. Like I'm surprised that he's he's bad at everything else. And I think he's too good for it to continue like this. But we're getting to a point where we we need to see it. Like we need to see him have a good game in conference play, put together two or three good games in a row before we really believe Keyshawn Gilbert's back as a number one or number two option. Well, and the other thing that I thought I was there uh, in the first half was defensively they weren't very good. Look, you allow San Diego State to shoot 58% from threes, you're not beating <laughs> San Diego State because they're too good defensively. They went in shooting 34% from threes. If they shoot 55 to 58%, you're not winning the game. Um, down 11 at the half and uh, ended up losing by nine. So defensively, you know, can't let that get lost in Keyshawn Gilbert's lack of offense because I didn't think they defended well in the first half and they let a team that does not shoot well, shoot well. So San Diego State took advantage of one of UNLV's defensive schemes. So UNLV switches everything, right? Does not matter if it's the point guard in the center there in the ball screen, they switch everything, which means David Mwaka and Victor Iwako, the two centers, end up guarding guards on the perimeter. In non-conference play, they didn't really get beat on this, right? Nobody really punished them for that. And there was a pretty large sense from UNLV that, hey, we can do this. We can switch Victory Waco, David Mawaka onto whoever, and we're not going to get burned by it. What San Diego State did is they would get the ball screen for Matt Bradley and sometimes Damian Trammell too, but they would get the ball screen for Matt Bradley and get Iwako or Mawaka guarding Matt Bradley. And then they just let him isolate. And the problem that UNLV ran into is, I think because they were worried Matt Bradley might drive right past him, they gave Matt Bradley a ton of space. They Mm -hmm. were backed off of him a couple more feet than they probably should have been. And what Matt Bradley did was just shoot. He had enough space to just shoot because Iwako or Mwaka were standing too far back because they were afraid of the drive. And that led to San Diego State knocking down a bunch of threes. There was a key stretch in this game. UNLV um, was down. They cut the lead to eight in the second half. San Diego State has the ball. They run the ball screen for Matt Bradley. Iwako gets switched on him. Bradley hits one of those threes. Next possession, they run it for Darian Trammell. Iwako gets switched onto him. Trammell actually started to drive. Iwako fell down. Trammell backed up. And hit a three. And hit a three. UNLV went from down eight in the last, I think it was nine minutes to go or something like that. You know, chance to come back and win. All of a sudden, they're down 14. With yeah, that's about whatever. eight minutes left. And UNLV did make a little bit of a push there after that, but that was basically made the lead to a point where it was going to be almost impossible to come back. Now, San Diego State shot 11 of 21 from three. Are teams going to shoot that well from three? Not that often. Right. Right. That's a really good percentage. But... San Diego State basically said, we're going to try to take advantage of something you do defensively, and you're giving us the threes because you're backing off of Matt Bradley. We're going to take those. And that's going to be a problem for you, Nobby, because if you play teams that have a guard that can dribble past victory Waco, then you either have to decide, do I let him shoot a three, or do I get up in him on the perimeter and risk him driving to the paint? And that's going to be a problem for you, Nobby, unless they switch their defense. Well... They might think about it because they're about to play a team with two really good guards. Yep. And probably will be an issue for UNLV again. I will say, if you get them to drive, UNLV's defense is good about the help side and collapsing into the paint. You're not usually going to give up layups, but you're potentially giving the kick out threes. So 
I think there's an issue. We did see it a little bit. Kevin Kruger, they did stop switching a couple of times uh, in the second half of that game. But I think there's a defensive scheme that UNLV has been running and has had a lot of success with that San Diego State exploited and other teams might be able to do the same thing. And it's not even that complex. It's just simply, here's a matchup we want to attack. And San Diego State was able to attack it and didn't really have significant problems doing so. So going forward, we'll see. Because UNLV has been good defensively. I do think ultimately, though, UNLV's defense was really good in the non-conference against bad offensive teams. And we've seen them the last two weeks play better offensive teams and struggle defensively. Not even really struggle, but going from being great to being above average. And UNLV's, if their defense is just simply above average, they're not that good of a team. So I think that's the issue here is that they were really good against bad offensive teams. And now that they're playing better offensive teams, we're seeing that their defense isn't truly one of the best top 25 or 35 in the country, which is what we thought they might be after the first, I don't know, eight games of the season, however long into the season we were. But I think that's the ultimate issue here is they just didn't play good enough offensive teams to give us a true gauge of what their defense will look like in Mountain West play. Yeah, and I think, uh, I don't know if they switch everything up, but like I said, they're about to play New Mexico with two really good guards, and you can't get exploited like that again, and teams are going to watch film. Yeah. Teams are going to say, how did San Diego State do it? And they're going to try to do the same things against them, especially if they have better guards than San Diego State. San Diego State has good guards. Uh, but those two guards from New Mexico are terrific. And I'm sure Patino's going to watch the film and see what happened and try to do the same thing. So that's on Kevin to counter it and figure out how to deal with stuff like that. Jalen House, one of those guards for New Mexico, shooting 47% from three. Jamal Mashburn, shooting 41% from yeah. three. Uh, so that's going to yeah. be a bit of an issue if they get switched onto bigs and UNLV sags off of them a little bit too, because those guys can shoot. And oh, by the way, they've got another guard that's shooting 45% from three. That's why they're the only <laughs> undefeated team in the country. They're they the last like, undefeated team. They got three guards that have all taken at least, uh, what's the minimum? At least 43s on the year. So none of these are like super small sample sizes. Three guards that are all shooting at least three three pointers a game, shooting over 40%. 40%. That's ridiculous. If they keep that up, they're going to be like a two-seed yeah, in the NCAA exactly. tournament. They'll, lose, they'll have lost like one or two games going into the tournament. All right, coming up next, David Roth joins the show. They'll announce our 11. Our 11 is Jordan Watkins, who wasn't in the fight. It was their 11 fighting 71 that everybody knew because their own coaches were yelling at the guy. There was a racial slur involved. That's not the point of what we're talking about, about the spitting part. I brought our own 71 up to the officials. I said, right or wrong, do you see him crying? He's not crying because he spit on him. He's crying because he got spit on and something was set. It's the Press Box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas. Joining us now from Defector is David Roth. Good morning, David. Hi, hey, David. Good morning, guys. Happy New Year. How you doing? Me too. Are you, uh, I think last week Jared told us you were trapped in Maine and that's why we didn't talk to you? I wouldn't say trapped. I was, you know, uh, I mean, I wasn't going out of the house because it was very cold, but I could theoretically have left whenever I wanted. Yeah, so you weren't booked on you weren't booked on Southwest Airlines. No, this was so we were just being cheap, and it wound up seeming smart. We flew up and then wound up driving back just because you know it was like cheaper to rent a car, and sometimes you get like a big gift that you don't want to uh, carry through the airlines. <laughs> that was not the case this year, but at the same time, like definitely. 
It's the smartest I've ever felt while driving for six hours across Massachusetts and Connecticut. Like, I was like, yeah, it could be worse. And it, did, it definitely could have been. You, so wait, hold on. Part of the thought process here was what if we get a present that's too big to fly on an airplane with? It's happened a lot. It's The issue has been, this is, it's less the case since my wife's mom passed, but it used to be that we would get, like, very practical gifts, like but stuff like a comforter or like a bunch of pillows, <laughs> like the things that are the worst to try to pack and or like you don't want to pay extra to like actually check in on an airline. But because it's just Kate's dad and he's very practical, it's the sort of thing where like, yeah, I mean, we like I literally got socks, you know, like I know how to pack those. All right. Uh, we've got some important audio to play for you. First, I got to explain the context here. Our afternoon show here on ESPN Las Vegas, they do every year a festivist show where they let listeners just call in and complain about whatever they want. Usually we hope it's directed at one of the shows here, uh, but we would like to play one of those for you. You know, for the Wonderful. past year, guys, I have gotten up at 7 a.m. and I had to listen to Ed Graney and Tyler Bischoff talk to some guy in New York City about whether or not his dishwasher is working. <laughs> That's a full <laughs> year of my life that I will never get back. Uh, so you've made a mark uh, on the there. people yeah. of Las Vegas. I'm going to just encourage that guy. First of all, obviously, I'm sorry. He's right. <laughs> also, though, run your own dishwasher and feel better, man. i got another meeting with the plumber on Thursday, and I have to hope that this is going to be the big one. So it's the guy washing things by hand for an entire year. That's a whole year of my life. <laughs> I'm glad you went from calling him right to being angry at him for complaining about it. Well, you know, I look, we're all we're all angry here. This is a difficult subject. Nobody likes to talk about dishwashers at this time of the morning. But I do under yes, I mean like obviously I can't argue with that. Uh I mean we could talk about other things. But obviously the reason we talk no. about the dishwasher no. is that it's it's much more entertaining than when I talk about like the Mets. Yeah. Well, actually, here you go. What what are the Mets doing with Carlos Correa? Are they going to sign this guy? I think yes, from what I've heard, but it is, uh, <laughs> it's been strange. I wrote the, uh, the team essay for them for the baseball prospectus annual this year, and it was a nice change of pace for me. They usually just give me a team that they think is going to make me mad in the past. That's like they've admitted to me that that's what they do. <laughs> so I've written about the Marlins twice. I've done the Angels, you know, like any team that, you know, if the longer you think about them, the more upset you get. And this year, when the Mets were going well, they gave me the Mets, and I was like, oh, this is really nice. Like, I'll get the chance to write about a, a team I care about, and I won't have to be, uh, you know, coming up with new, elaborate, cruel descriptions for their owner. And then, as I was, like, coming up on the deadline, I had to keep revising and revising and revising with the Korea thing. As it is, I left it, I mean, it's weird, the book's going to, like, go to print on Friday or something like that, so we can only ever get so close. It does, from what I've heard from people that know more than me. It seems like it's a virtual certainty that they are going to sign him, but that the reason that the holdup happened is that this issue that made the Giants back out, the plate in his leg, is apparently the sort of thing that theoretically could lead to arthritis later in his life. The deal is still going to go forward. There's just like 100,000 lawyers that have to sign off on all the various caveats and little clauses that will be in it. But it's not going to be the sort of thing where he winds up signing for three years and $80 million. Like, it's going to look more or less like the deal, the 12 years, 315, I think it was, that they agreed to before Christmas. And then it's just a question of ironing that out. 
but it seems like it's been two weeks, and I know there was a big couple holidays in there, but it's like, obviously, there's a lot to iron out. It's just, it's strange that he's been so good for so long. And I know, in, like you said, in time, if it's a 12-year deal, there could be, whether it's arthritis or whatever, but it's sort of comical, I guess, in a way, that they're having so many problems with a guy who's been so terrific. And has even been healthy the last few years. Yeah. I mean, like, relative to... The to what Corey Seager got and other guys that have like really struggled to sort of stay on the field going into their free agent years. This is the best case scenario for signing a guy to a deal that long. You're moving him to a position where he's likelier to last a little bit longer. They seem at this point like everybody that cares about baseball knows everything there is to know about his physical situation. So presumably there's no surprises coming. And yet, yeah, it's really been odd. Like, especially the way that the Giants sort of handled it. And I don't know what the the deal was there. That's a, a strange organization. But to come as close as they came and then decide that this was the case, really, like, especially now that we know more about it, it's, you know, it's a strange thing, but it's not like a degenerative hip condition that's going to make it. It's just a, a thing that could go badly if things go badly but that's like a way to describe anything that exists not just having to do with baseball it's like if i go out for lunch like any number of terrible things could happen you know like you just but you still go out for lunch uh, so i don't know what they're going to wind up doing with it but i i do sense that cohen wants to get the deal done and so i think we'll get done and then the mets win the world series i mean i think they win a lot of games during the regular season i've been trying to sort of i mean i've seen projections that have them north of a hundred wins without Correa, which is great. I think if they have him, then, you know, that's a, a lineup as good as any in the National League. I just feel like, you know, to watch last year, I'm, I'm trying, this is me, I'm coping now. It's January. <laughs> this is how I'm beginning the process here, is that anything that happens in October is going to be stupid. It's going to be cool. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to enjoy it. I have no expectations uh, that a team, any team that wins 110 games during the regular season to me, like you basically wipe that clean by the time you get to the postseason. My concern with them winning a World Series is still that like their two best pitchers are thirty seven and forty one years old or something like that, you know, and that's you don't know what you're gonna have from them at the end of the year. But this is again, I'm rationalizing at seven thirty in the morning local time. If they win 105 or 110 games during the regular season and I get to go to as many of them as I can justify, uh, I want to believe that'll be enough. But, you know, you can play this clip for me next October when I'm whining about, like, format. <laughs> format. <laughs> so I will be doing that, I'm sure. How many, wait, how many games could they win if they had Scherzer and Verlander not pitch until, like, early September? And that way they just have to make, like, six starts and then, bam, postseason time. That would be, I always feel like the Dodgers do stuff like that where, you know, and it's sort of like there'll be months of the season where it sort of doesn't matter. And there's guys come, I mean, especially because they're the Dodgers, it's just like some dude that you faintly remember pitching for the Reds three years ago and his ERA is like 2.4 and he's out there like throwing six innings that week. I think that they could, um, they could make the playoffs. I feel like right now they have the misfortune of the fact that like basically half the teams in baseball that are trying are in their division. And so if they were to really do the load management thing with Scherzer and Verlander, they'd still have to play the Phillies and the Braves a lot. So I don't know. I, I think that there's going to be some difference in how they 
handle all of that relative to last year because like I both did a great job. Like I don't want to say anything bad about him. I like that he's the manager of the team. They really were fading in September, and I think not even just because of the pitching. I mean, it was just all the regulars played every day, and I hope that they are a little bit more circumspect about that this year because I think that that by the time they got to the playoffs, it, you know, I thought they were going to win the World Series for like the first four months of the season. And by the time we got to September, I was doing the sort of coping that you were hearing me do earlier, where I was like, well, we had fun, didn't we? Wasn't July great? And I, I don't want to do that again, and I don't think they do either. Well, he is David Roth from Defector, as always, giving us updates on the Mets and his dishwasher. Uh, I'm, I hope all of our listeners are still happy to know you don't have a dishwasher. Thanks, David. Thanks, We're gonna, David. You know what? When we pivot to hot plate discourse, I think that the guy that uh, was complaining there earlier is going to realize how good he had it. <laughs> Thanks, David. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. So there's David Roth from Defector, and uh, yes, listeners of Cofield and Company have heard David Roth complaining about not having a dishwasher for over a year. Coming up next, we'll get into some college football as Georgia and TCU are going to play for the national title. Arnold snaps, Mirko spots, Ruggles kick in the air, and it's no good. Pulled it to the left, and Georgia's going to walk away with a one-point victory. Snap, hold, kick, eh, eh, eh. no! Good! No! Good! He missed it! Left! The bench explodes! It's midnight! Happy New Year! We're back to the press box with Grady and Bischoff. Why think I sound like Eeyore? I wonder which calls those were, Ohio State and Georgia. (laughs) So, college football playoffs over the weekend... Two good games for maybe the first time ever. We got two good semifinals in the college football playoffs. You heard that Ohio State losing to Georgia by one on a missed 50-yard field goal in the final 10 seconds. TCU also beat Michigan 51-45. to There were 44 points scored in the third quarter of that semifinal. Six touchdowns in six and a half minutes in the third quarter. So... First off, Ed, TCU's playing for a national championship. Oh, man. Pretty exciting. Got it's, the sun. He's going crazy. It's kind of unbelievable. He's excited. Yeah. Um, they were in they the weren't ranked before the year. They were unranked, yes. They were unranked. We'll play for the title. They were in the Mountain West, uh, yes. what, eight years ago, <laughs> yeah. nine years ago, something <laughs> like that? Uh, kind of unbelievable. The TCU's in a point, uh, spot where they're playing for the national championship. Here's a question for you, though. Is the national championship close? Did Georgia look susceptible enough to Ohio State? And did TCU's uh, performance against Michigan give you any reason to believe that we will have a close game in the national championship? I don't think so because I think the escape woke Georgia, but I think they will come back much better. And their coach afterwards, uh, Kirby, who uh, doesn't like anybody and doesn't like how his team plays at all, all he said was we have to play better. So I'm sure this week of practice will be focused. No, I think um, I think escaping like that, sometimes you come back and you're much better. I love TCU's story. I'd love for TCU to win, um, but I think Georgia's the best team. I mean, is it going to be 42-10? to 10? I don't think it's going to be 42-10, to 10, but I also don't think they're going to need TCU to miss a field goal in the last seconds to win the game. So here's the fascinating part about TCU this year. Uh, they obviously lost the one game to Kansas State at the end of the year in overtime. 
But if you go through basically all of their games, they had, it looks like, four blowout wins. Every other win they had is by 10 points or less. TCU plays close games. Now, they won all of them except one. The Vikings. I don't know if that matters too much, but there's something to me about, ah, this team plays close games. They're they're probably going to play another one. I, at least that's what I'm hoping for. It's like... I, mean, well, I you, think everyone's hoping for a good game. Right. It's like um, last year when we made fun of Nebraska because it did not matter who they played. They were going to lose by four. Right. Right. They they it, they could play a top five team in the country and they were going to lose by four. They could lo- play the worst team in the Big Ten. They were going to lose by four. TCU is kind of the opposite of that. doesn't really matter who they play. They're going to win by seven or ten. Uh, so part of me thinks we might get a close game because of that. The TCU is a good enough team to hang around with Georgia. You're right. But here's here's my actual issue. C.J. Stroud was unbelievable in that game against Georgia. C.J. Stroud was incredible to the point where I'm like, maybe he should be the first overall pick in the draft. I don't know that Max Duggan's doing what C.J. Stroud did. Yeah. I don't know that they're getting that quarterback performance because Max Duggan's not as good of a passer. No. As C.J. Stroud. So I don't know that we're getting that quarterback play against that Georgia defense. And I don't think TCU against Georgia defense is running for 263. Right. So I think that's going to be a bit of, uh, that's going to be the problem anyways for TCU keeping this close is do they get the quarterback play that Ohio State got? And I would be surprised if they did. Also, do they get two defensive touchdowns like they did against right. Michigan? Right. Probably, Probably not. not. Probably um, not. Stetson so Bennett probably doesn't throw those picks. I would say this. We got the good games. Even if the national championship's a blowout, it'll be disappointing. But we got two out of the three games were excellent, and I'm on board with that. We can get two out of the three every year. That's very good. Very good. Oh, here's the other, here's the real point. Okay. When the playoff expands, it's going to be phenomenal. We are going to get so many games like the two we saw over the weekend. Sure. Because, okay, here's the problem in college football. Georgia. Or it's been Alabama. It's been some of those Clemson's teams. Every year, there's usually one, maybe two teams in college football that are just unbelievable. And they've got, like, at all all plays, they've got 11 good players on the field, right? What makes college football great are the teams that have, like, seven good players on the field at all times. And then they've got four guys who aren't so great. And that's what leads to fun college football games because you still have good players that make great plays and then you've got two or three guys that just screw something up and it leads to a big play. When we get the playoff, when we get the team seated 5 through 12 into the playoff, there's going to be so many teams that like, yeah, we got like seven good guys on offense. And when they play well, we're great. When the other four kind of screw around, we somehow give up a pick six or the quarterback gets sacked 36 times. The 5 through 12 games are going to be phenomenal. And they might not matter. Well, in they're going to be of, close. Yeah, it might not matter in terms of who wins the title because there seems to no, be because one there's going to be one or two teams as the one seed that are just perfect, right? But we're going to get some fun games like that, and it'll make the product much, much better. And I can't wait. It's going to be phenomenal. How many teams from the Mountain West in the next ten years is in is in that thing? <laughs> Zero. Zero. I mean, they'll get some in because at some point you'll be the highest ranked Group of Five team or something like that. But uh, as the 12 seed, let's see. The problem is Boise State's fallen from being. Yeah, they've nationally relevant they've, to just they fall into where every year they're the best group of five teams. Right. They they used to be. Oh, they should probably be ranked 15th right. in the country right. or whatever to now. 
they're still the best program in the Mountain West, but they're a nine and three program that instead you, of eleven and yeah, one or twelve that, and that you can yeah. beat, and you can beat them in the Mountain West title right. game too. So they'll need they'll need a. It's just a conference where it's like. It's, it's similar to basketball. There's just not enough separation between one and two Five. through six. Right. That it's like, it's going to be really hard to go 11 and one yeah. in this conference. I mean, it's hard to do what Tulane did, which is go, go 11 <sighs> and two. After winning two games last year. Yeah. By the way, uh, it's possible to have a big turnaround in one year in college football. Yeah. It doesn't take four years to go from zero four. wins to six. I know who you're talking about. Four. Yeah. It only took one year to go from two to 12 and right. two and beating USC. Uh, but, you know, should have needed four years a to get to a bowl to four game. Around here. By the way, Barry Odom is going to be under the same expectations. Not to get to 12 wins, but... Well, can't be taken to the can't be taking the program in four years from now. Ah, we finally got to six wins. You get to the bowl. You need to do it a little bit sooner than that. A little bit sooner. Be a little bit better. Be a little too lame for you. That could be fun.